0: Just coming out of him a little bit more and a little bit more at a time. You see, his readers and he share Christianity, a common religion uh, founded in Jesus Christ. But before that came along, they shared in the religion of Judaism, of, of being of the, the race, the, the seed of Israel, the children of God, as mentioned in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so he uses this parallel in their previous religion that they shared to, to write some masterful parallels in the Scriptures. Uh, I'm just going to give you a a general idea, getting you all the way through Hebrews in just a matter of minutes, and we're going to get to chapter 13. He compares his readers to wilderness wanderers, and that's a loaded phrase to them. He tells them of an ultimate Christian rest that perhaps they had forgotten about and would not enter if they neglected so great a salvation. He lays forth the priesthood of Jesus Christ, which is unique. Nowhere else in the New Testament does it talk about Jesus as a high priest and how he is superior to the previous system Under Moses, with the priesthood. He talks about a new covenant that previous covenants pointed to and led up to, a covenant that was superior just like Christ was superior, and finally, a covenant that was ultimately sufficient. He talks about the sanctuary of heaven itself and how Christ entered it once and for all, not once a year, to make sacrifices for, to make the one ultimate sacrifice for our sin totally doing away with it, and how he is superior to that. He talks about faith in chapter 11 and how the righteous live by it, how the figures of the past walked in it and came to know God through it, how the patriarchs, how, how Abel, how Noah, how Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel out of Egypt, and how Rahab thrived in God, even though they had rough parts in their life, through faith. And he says, I forgot to even mention all these other people. At this climax, he, in the letter he pen uh, at his, at this climax in the letter, I imagine that his pen is just moving rapidly. He's probably writing uh, words uh, slower than he can think his thoughts and get the language out onto the paper. And finally, in chapter 12, after the chapter of faith, he writes the ultimate vision of the Christians at at uh, whoever the wherever the Hebrew letter was designated to of running the race running a race free of the weight of sin while they are surrounded by all those who walked in the faith of God before them, all the while focused upon Jesus, who was the author and the finisher of their faith. He climaxes in this moment of the sermon, and then his tone becomes, it becomes a little cooler, a little softer, but it's still just as passionate and still just as serious in the moment the excitement dies down about chapter, uh, mid-chapter 12 and, and chapter 13, and he begins feeding them steady, motivating truths. By the time we read Hebrews uh, chapter 12 and verse 12, we notice the sobering tone with which he speaks. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated. But rather be healed. I bet the recipients read those words and all the words leading up to that moment in the letter, and, and the same fire that was in the writer began to build in the orator that was reading that letter to the rest of those gathered in the congregation. I picture them sitting together, tucked away in some little hideout because they're all too afraid to be too public, and, and half of them may not have even been there because they were too afraid to meet. The mood is quiet and everyone realizes that, that they've had a letter sent to them. The orator gets it out. He begins reading it in kind of a, a lull. Things get more interesting. The more he reads it, perhaps maybe uh, the more he goes through all these things, he gets, he gets even more excited while he reads it. At Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12, the sentence is read, and I bet their hearts fluttered within them. Their confidence begin to, begins to return. Their posture begins to straighten a little bit. And a few of them sitting in the room probably nodded their heads and began thinking, I get it. I can do this. I can hold fast. I will hold fast. Maybe a person speaks up after after the letter was read to somebody else calling out, go get the others that didn't even meet today because they were afraid. They're going to want to hear this. In the final chapter of Hebrews, uh, we find about 17 imperatives, uh, commands from the writer, and one last and one excellent parallel to the Old Testament. It's in verses 10 through 15, and that's where I want to read now. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. This is what the whole moment of Hebrew, uh, of Hebrews boils down to right here. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks through his name. I always step over that crack. What words were written to a church limping along on the fringe of survival, just getting by, in the depths of near despair. They were not told to take it easy. They were not told to have pity on themselves in a moment of trial or isolation. They were not told to console each other and say, They're there, we gave it our best shot, and it's over now. They were told to run the race with endurance in chapter 12. They were told to remember Christ and His supremacy and therefore to steady themselves in their situation and be unshakable in spite of the circumstances around them not falling into place for them, not being in their favor. They were not promised by the writer any sort of comfort and physical safety. They were not promised anything that would point them towards complacency. In fact, they were told the exact opposite if you read those verses in that Old Testament parallel. They were told to go outside of the camp. In, in Israelite imagery, in the, in the first five books of the Old Testament, you have Moses and you have the instructions after they've gotten out of Egypt to build the tabernacle. And they would pick this up, this tent up, and God would tabernacle, He would dwell with them. And wherever they set it, that's where God would be. And when it was time to pick up and move on again, that's what they did. If you were not inside the camp, you were not inside safety. If you were not inside the camp, you were not inside a community and you didn't have the acceptance of them. If you weren't inside the camp, you didn't have convenience or anything like that. If you weren't inside the camp, you didn't have future insurance on things, assurance from peers or any degree of comfort. If you were outside the camp, you were in the wilderness, ready to die, like the animals that were offered and thrown out. In the desert. In Hebrews, they were instructed to go outside the camp. In Hebrews, they were instructed in this, in this awful time in their church history. They were not instructed to have pity on themselves. They were instructed instead to leave the city and go where Christ is. I imagine the city that they lived in. How, how in the world would this make sense to them? Leave the city that you're in. Uh, metaphorically, Go outside of the social acceptance of the city that you live in. Go outside the circle of comfort that you have in your family if it means going toward Christ. Go outside the circle of monetary security if it means leaving your job to go to Christ. What on earth? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Well, it does if you've been reading the first 12 chapters of Hebrews. And so far you come across this text, it makes perfect sense to tell a bunch of broken, fearful, discouraged people to make their situation seemingly worse. It makes perfect sense because even though the author was asking the readers to persevere and move away from a world of safety, convenience, comfort, and acceptance socially with other people in their life, what he was moving his readers toward was far greater. Jesus Christ Giver of eternal safety. Giver of eternal comfort. The one who makes us acceptable, not to society always, but acceptable to God and so many other things. To this world, it is spiritual suicide to go outside of those things when you're at the end of your rope. But to Christians, it's always life-giving when you go where Christ is, even if it's outside what the world defines as safety or convenience or comfort. The world looks outside the camp, outside the limits of the city, and it sees somewhat of a wasteland, uh, a place where people and things and animals go, not to live and to thrive or to find a new identity, but to die and to decay and to rot and to be desolate and isolated. Christians look at that same exact picture in this book of Hebrews, and they proclaim, Christ is there. I'll go to Him. It's beautiful. It's beautiful outside. Verse 14 in Hebrews chapter 13 lays down the clear reality. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Here, in that verse, equals complacency. It equals comfort. It equals selfishness and indifference. It equals spiritual death. But the city to come, the there in the verse, is eternal. It's full of spiritual life. It's full of the unselfish love of Christ and the true community of acceptance, the church, the body of Christ itself. When we accept this reality, we can be the body of Christ in the world, even if it's a hostile, trying, sin-soaked world. If we accept this reality, we will have the strength to endure and persevere. Let's look at some of the imperatives that's mentioned in the last chapter of Hebrews We said that there were over 17. I just want, or 17, I want to scan a few. Look at verse 1 in chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Are you kidding me? In the midst of all the persecution? Why don't we all just split up and run for our lives? Two, do not forget to entertain strangers. What if they're ratting us out? Three, remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Four, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. So he's basically telling them marriage is honorable, stick to it. Five, let your conduct be without covetousness. But everybody's raiding our stuff and taking it away because we're Christians. Seven, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct... 9. Do not be carried about with various strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Look at verse 16. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. It's verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. In verse 18, it continues and continues and continues in imperatives. How in the world are we supposed to, to do all these things in a hostile environment that doesn't care if Christianity thrives or doesn't? We do them even in a hostile environment because Christ is outside and if we are there, And Christ is there. We have the strength of Christ. Let's apply this to us. I know there are people in this room that are on a spiritual high right now. Let me speak a word to you for a moment. You are needed. You can show Christ's love to the people in this church that are going through a rough time right now, that are going through a crisis, and you can help them remember what God is about, and you can help them endure. Let's remind each other of the promises that we have in Christ in our drooping moments, so that the church may endure, even even thrive outside the gate, outside the the social, worldly realm of comfort and acceptance and resources. Let us suffer outside as as the church, the body of Christ, with Christ himself, the picture of discipleship as it should be. I know there are people in this very room who are tired, who are weary, who are in survival mode, who are hurting, and who are afraid, and you're waiting for the next step to be delivered, let me speak a word to you for a moment. It is hard. It is difficult. And not all of your days are pleasant. And God knows this. And the church knows this. And it's aware. And God has this to say to you from the word of God, Hebrews tonight. You can endure. You can. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather healed. Christ is superior and he will get you through this. Life is tough, but we have been promised a great deal by God who can deliver so let's go. Let's strengthen one another. Let's stay out here outside the city gate where Christ is because then we will have strength to stand even if we don't know what is to come. Because guess what? We, we have no continuing city here in the world. There's nothing left for, for anybody in the world. Christ is it. It's Christ or nothing. Let us go to him even if it means suffering in the present life. Let's use this time of trial to cast off Satan and to worship and praise God instead. What do you say to broken, weary, tired people? You say something like, Christ is here. Come. Christ is superior. He is outside. If you were there with him, it might not be the most ideal situation in this life, but it is the best situation in the next life there is anything that we can do for you to help you realize that Christ is superior, to encourage you and help you posture yourself on God's side against Satan and the world and everything that it stands for, won't you please let us help you as a church while we come and stand and sing.